This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk to you today about um, cancer from an evolutionary perspective. Um, I study cancer across different levels of biological organization, from organismal evolution to um, cancer cell somatic evolution. Today I'm going to focus just on organismal evolution, but more than happy to talk in the question period about um, tumor cell evolution as well. Okay, so I wanted to start uh, today's talk um, discussing um, some sh slightly shocking statistics on the rates of cancer development and um, the, the probability of dying from cancer in the U.S. And um, in, in, in women, it's one in three women and one in two men in their lifetime have the risk of developing cancer. And one in five women and one in four men have um, the risk of dying from cancer. This is U.S. population. And while that's um, quite a shocking statistic, um, what I'd like to highlight today and talk you through is that cancer is not unique to humans, okay? It occurs across the tree of life. And so before I get into that, I wanted to briefly back up and talk about what cancer is um, from the cellular level. Um, cancer is a problem of our cells. It's a disease of our cells. We are, we are a multicellular body. Our cells cooperate, and they follow rules, okay? Um, like this cartoon depicts, can I divide? No, there's no room here. Okay. All cells cooperate to perform uh, or to have a multicellular body, okay? Oops. Sorry, the clicker. Okay. So if a, a cell doesn't follow the rule, <laughs> um, the neighbor may tell it to kill itself, okay? <laughs> it's great. <laughs> um, it's something called apoptosis, and I'll talk about it again um, later, all right? However, in cancer, in all multicellular bodies, they do not follow the rules of the multicellular bo body. They start dividing even when their neighbors tell them not to. All right? They evade the immune system. They start bringing in resources when um, they are told not to. Okay? They create blood vessels. They hide from the immune system. And they make the environment quite toxic for your neighbors. Everyone's had that neighbor that's throwing their garbage all over the ground, right? So th they're, they're pretty poor neighbors as well. And um, so you can kind of think of the cancer cell as a cellular cheater. Most of the cells in the body are cooperating, but these cancer cells we can think of as cellular cheaters, all right? And so cancer cells that suddenly are not listening to the rules of the body um, have escaped from um, the constraints, can divide out of control, and that's how a tumor is formed, okay? And just uh, a, a, a phenomenal fact, uh, the human body has 37 trillion cells that are all trying to cooperate uh, with each other at all times, okay? And when a cell divides, it has three billion nucleotides, three billion base pairs that it has to perfectly match. And when it doesn't perfectly match, 
such as having a mistake in cellular replication, um, this becomes a mutation, and that mutation can lead to the cell not following the rules of the body, okay? And so this is just a little small cartoon for you here. So you have a cell. All the cells in your body are dividing all the time. Every time a cell divides, there's a chance for a mutation to occur, okay? You have 3 billion base pairs. You have 37 trillion cells. There's huge probability. Um, although I don't want to scare you here, we have amazing biology and mechanisms that can correct these mutations, but some, some do escape these mechanisms, all right? So we have a cell. The cell has a mutation, okay? What can the cell do with this mutation? Well, it can fix it. We have things in... Um, the cellular workshop that can, can actually go in and fix a mutation. This cell can say, I don't know what to do with you. You need to kill yourself. Um, there's too many mutations. Um, go on. And this is something called apoptosis, and it's happening all the time, all right? If, if, if there's too many mutations, the cell can kill itself. Um, but every once in a while, neither of these things happen, and the cell with the mutation lives and doesn't get repaired. And it can go on to pass on its mutation to its daughter cells and start gaining more mutations as it divides, okay? Um, and this is, this is a problem when, um, when we see the formation of a tumor, all right? It has many different mutations. And we do think cancer can start with a single cell. Um, and so this problem of not catching it from the very beginning is, um, is something that, again, with a lifetime risk of accumulating a bunch, a bunch of mutations, you can finally hit an important part in the genome where, where um, it can lead to cancer and some important genes called tumor suppressor genes, okay? But all else being equal, um, cancer can be thought of as a numbers game, and I'm going to come back to this when we're talking about um, the size of an organism. But as you can see here, the number of dividing cells, so the number of cells in a body, um, if you have more cells, you have more chances of getting that bad mutation. So that can increase your cancer risk. And then the lifetime of an individual. Again, I'm talking about broad talking about the tree of life right now, all right? And so the lifetime of an individual, the longer you live around, the higher uh, probability that you could get that bad mutation that could lead to tumor formation. But like I said earlier, cancer is not unique to humans. If any of you have uh, one of these animals, some of you might know that they are susceptible to tumors. Um, especially dogs. Dogs get about 10 times as many, um, or the rate of cancer is about 10 times as much as um, a human's. Um, and so thinking about it from this perspective, you can, um, you can start asking questions, when did cancer arise across the tree of life, okay? How far back in our evolutionary history does, does this go? And, um, Thinking about cancer as a cellular problem and it being uh, about a cellular cheater, you realize that cancer is a problem with multicellular organisms, okay? So when cells get together and cooperate and one decides to cheat, that is essentially cancer, all right? And we know that complex multicellularity has evolved appendantly across the tree of life 
many different times, seven to eight times, independently in different fungi, animals, plants, um, algae. And so you can think about starting to look at cancer across these independent multiple um, lineages of complex multicellularity and see if, if we do have evidence um, for, for cancer in these lineages. And so that's exactly what a bunch of colleagues and I did was we did a literature search and survey of as many different complex multicellular lineages and if there is any support or evidence of a tumor or tumor-like growth in these organisms. So what you're seeing here is a phylogeny of the um, lineages we did survey. And the red box means that there was cancer reported in that lineage. Yellow meant that it was a cancer-like phenomena. It, sometimes it was very difficult to actually define cancer when um, you're a comb jelly compared to a human. Um, and then the green box said that there was no cancer reported. And again, this doesn't mean that these organisms did not get cancer. It's just that there was no evidence in the literature. These black boxes of black, gray, or white um, define if it was a complex multicellular organism, simple or aggregative, or unicellular. And what we really saw in this survey is that cancer was apparent across the tree of life, especially in the lineages that led to complex multicellularity. Although we do see uh, cancer occurring more often, it could be a sampling bias in vertebrate and even more um, at higher rates in mammals. And I'd love to discuss that more. And um, our question is, what is uni unique about mammals and why do they get cancer more than other organisms? So from this survey, we can really say that cancer is an evolutionary ancient disease and a consequence of being multicellularity. And this is some of the examples we did find in the literature of, of a beetle with a tumor and a fungi with, with an abnormal growth. And this is one of the most striking and amazing ones. And this is the crested cactus. And um, this is actually um, something that botanists look for in certain cacti. Um, I came from Arizona State University, and they had some of these in the botanical gardens um, close to the university. And it's thought to be due to a somatic mutation that leads to this fan-like um, structure. Okay, so we can say that cancer is evolutionary ancient. It's been around with us probably since cells had to start aggregating together and uh, cooperating. Um, so if it's ancient, why haven't we solved the problem of cancer? Why do we still see cancer across all these different lineages? And then why are some animals better at suppressing cancer than others? And we can start asking these questions to give us hints into how to treat and help human diseases, which I hope I'll bring back to you in the talk here, okay? So if cancer is evolutionary ancient, why do we get cancer? I'm gonna highlight a few different reasons. I'll go into some details and um, bring it back around, okay? So I said because we're multicellular, multicellular um, there's something called antagonistic pleiotropy. This is one potential reason why we do see cancer in more organisms and others. One could be due to evolutionary or environmental mismatch. That's our modern lifestyles. 
or different environmental exposures. We know that there's certain lifestyle risk factors that influence our cancer risks. There's trade-offs um, between uh, energetic trade-offs that, that might influence our cancer risk. There's obviously genomic susceptibility, um, which can lead to just downright bad luck, okay? And it's not just one of these, it's all of these things that influences our risks of cancer. The first one I wanted to go into a little bit more detail on was antagonistic pleiotropy. And so this is something where if you have benefits early in life of an organism, they can outweigh, there's something called selection shadow. And I'm gonna give you an example of one of these. So benefits early in life can lead to disease susceptibility later in life. And so an example of that in, in, in terms of the framework of looking at cancer is um, the selection for growth. Like I said, cancer is a problem of many cells and uh, the bigger you are, you're less susceptible to getting eaten by a predator. Um, you may have greater reproductive success as an organism, but that means you have more cells that require more cell divisions and that can increase your chances of mutation, okay? Additionally, faster growth requires rapid cell divisions and rapidly dividing cells may do a poor job at proofreading the DNA and repair, okay? Um, so just to give you an example of this um, is a melanoma in a platyfish. So this black spot right here is melanoma in this fish. Um, it's actually due to a mutation in a growth factor receptor, but what, what happens in this population is that these male fish um, with melanoma are actually bigger than the fish without it, and the females always mate with the largest male. And so you could see how this is, and, and it, this, the fish, they've done some studies to look at it. Uh, they have reduced swimming and um, they, they don't live as long, but this actually stays within the population because the females mate with the largest uh, male. Another example is antleromas in deer. Um, antlers are really amazing mammalian appendage. They're one of the fastest growing. Um, they're very important for male deer in, in fighting and securing a mate, um, but they're also susceptible to these tumors, potentially because they're one of the fastest growing um, thing, uh, mammalian appendages that they don't have enough chance to um, check for uh, mutations in their uh, DNA as they're proliferating. And so what's interesting about both of these cases as, is that um, these species may um, benefit from enhanced cellular proliferation, either in body size or some kind of sexually selected trait or appendage, um, but can also uh, increase the risk for getting cancer. And so you can predict that there might be trade-offs between reproductive competitiveness that might outwin getting cancer later on in life, okay? Another example I wanted to point out was evolutionary mismatch. So that's when you're not in an environment that you evolved in, okay? Your environment's changing too much. Um, one of these examples I like to show is the domestication of species. Many domesticated species have an increased risk of cancer. Um, the um, domestic hen is the only non-human um, 
that we know of that gets spontaneous ovarian cancer, and it's because they've been bred to lay eggs daily. So they're now at a mismatch. They have this reproductive output that they're, um, that they're laying eggs daily, and this could increase the risk for ovarian cancer. Um, and then the third thing I wanted to talk to you about today in cancer risk before we go back to this survey is talking about life history trade-offs, okay? And this is something that um, is really close to the research I do now, is looking at this trade-off between reproduction and cancer defense mechanisms. So according to life history theory, there's a trade-off between reproduction and survival. You can see this in an example of comparing uh, mice to elephants, right? So organisms that live in a harsh environment, high predation, unpredictable resources, typically evolve something called the fast life history strategy. Um, they invest in reproduction over survival, have tons of babies, shorter lifespans. But on the other end of the spectrum, in predictable environments, in low predation, you have organisms that grow very slowly. They invest in their somatic maintenance um, over reproduction. Um, they have fewer offspring, and they live a long time, okay? So these are two ends of a spectrum. And so you might be thinking, how does this life history trade-off actually um, fit within cancer? And um, what, what most people don't think about when they think about life history trade-offs is cancer defense mechanisms are actually a major component of somatic maintenance, okay? And so that includes DNA repair, cell cycle control, and immune function. These are all important cancer defense mechanisms. And if you're a long-lived species, you have enhanced mechanisms for your longevity, okay? And so based on this life history framework, there should be a relationship between cancer rates and organisms' life history strategies, okay, across multicellular organisms. So we should predict organisms such as the mouse that reproduce and have short lifespans would get more cancer than something like an elephant that lives a very long time. It's more likely that a mouse is going to die of a predator instead of living long and developing a tumor. And this is actually something that was observed in cancer biology. So this is this intersection of two different fields. We have uh, evolutionary life history theory, and then the cancer biologists were observing this in what they called something called Pedo's paradox, where Sir Pedo said, if an elephant is bigger than a human and has that many more cells than a human, all else being equal, the elephant should get much more cancer than a human. If it has the same tumor suppressor mechanisms, it should get much more cancer because there's just a higher probability of a cell that could divide and create a mutation that leads to a tumor. But what they are observing is not true, uh, which suggests that there's something, maybe additional tumor suppressor mechanisms, that the elephant had to evolve in order to get so big and long-lived. Okay? And um, th we see this, we see this across, so this is one of the first empirical supports of PETA's paradox and a life history framework is that there's no relationship between body mass lifespans and cancer rates across at least these 36 mammals. Um, we have more data now, um, it's not published yet, but it's showing the same trend that bigger, longer-lived animals do not get more cancer 
um, they actually get slightly less cancer than the shorter-lived animals. Um, you might notice here that there's um, an outlier called the Tasmanian devil. Some of you might be familiar that Tasmanian devils get a contagious form of cancer um, on their face. Um, this is a zoo population, so they did not have the contagious cancer. We can talk about the contagious cancer again in the questions. I see some people with their mouths open. Um, but um, this is a zoo population. They did not have the contagious facial tumor. Um, but it is an interesting note that they do ha get extremely high rates of cancer in this zoo population. Okay? Okay, so why should we care about cancer vulnerability across the tree of life? Um, well, it gives insights into how evolution could have solved the problem of cancer. It can point us in new directions of, of human treatment. It can say what has worked in other animals. And if we have very similar genes, that's where we should maybe target our cancer treatments and preventions. All right, it can give us clues on cancer prevention as well. So how have some people solved this problem, or how have some species solved this problem of cancer? Um, and how do we move forward? I said that many organisms are um, vary in their susceptibility of cancer. Um, and so what are the underlying lying genomic mechanisms? And we're just beginning to understand some of these, okay? So this is going to be a brief highlight of some of the key players and key mechanisms that we see. And what's surprising and really cool is each lineage has solved it a different way. And that gives us a really good roadmap for human treatment, okay? And so um, two, two organisms that are the poster child of cancer resistance are the naked mole rat and the blind mole rat. And interestingly, they're phylogenetically distant, meaning they're not sister taxa, and they have different mechanisms of cancer resistance, okay? So look at this really cute, adorable organism, right? Adorable, N the naked mole rat, they live underground cutest picture you'll see all day. Um, they live underground. They're eusocial. They're the, one of the coolest mammals ever. Do you know what that means, eusocial? They live in colonies and there's a queen and they're a mammal. It's really cool. Okay, they can live up to 30 years. They're mouse-sized, but they live up to 30 years. Very, very cool organisms. What researchers have discovered is they have a really unique amino acid change in an important gene that's involved in early contact inhibition. So what they think is that these, these animals' cells are very good at cellular death, all right? They lose contact with their neighbor, they kill themselves, apoptosis, okay? The blind mole rat, okay, some people th say it has fur and it's cuter, but um, my vote's still the naked mole rat. Um, this is really amazing, and we'll go back to this with the elephant. So um, the blind mole rat in its genome has a mutation in P53. This is a really important tumor suppressor gene. Most cancer patients ha in, th in their tumor have a mutation in P53. This blind mole rat has a P53 mutation that's found frequently in human tumors, yet it's still cancer resistant. It's quite remarkable. Um, seems like they had a duplication event and a really important gene um, that's, again, important in necrosis and inflammation. And again, very rapid cell death by necrosis uh, in this, this organism. So this organism's very good at killing its cells when they're cheating. 
The last organism I'm going to highlight is the elephant. And um, this is really phenomenal. Um, a close collaborator and colleague of mine um, studies uh, the elephant, and they discovered that elephants have duplications in that important tumor, uh, um, tumor suppressor gene, P53. Humans have two alleles, ele elephants have 40. They've extended it that much. We don't know if they're all functional or not, okay? They could be, they're a, a little bit chopped up in the genome, but they have a, a huge expansion of a super important tumor suppressor gene, okay? And this is amazing. This is what they did. They did some cellular assays on this, all right? And so they took fibroblast cells from individuals. There's individuals with... Um, a genetic disease called Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, and they only have one P53 allele. Their lifetime risk of cancer is 90%. Healthy individuals, two P53 alleles, and then elephants with 40 P53 alleles. They challenge these cells to DNA damage assays, usually giving them some kind of radiation or drug. And they see that individuals with Lee-Fraumeni syndrome don't apoptose. So this is how much the cell dies, all right? So how much the cells kill themselves. Um, healthy human controls, about halfway there. And look at this. Elephant cells are very good at killing themselves when they see DNA damage. It's a great tumor suppressor mechanism. If you don't push those mutations forward, then you can't get the tumor, all right? You just kill it. And so I hope by highlighting those three, what we're seeing now is it's all about this cell death. And what we don't know, and this is a really cool and exciting new avenue, is why certain organisms seem to be so much better at killing their cells when there's a problem than other organisms, right? So why, why can an elephant cell um, have the capacity to kill its cells when it sees mutations? so much more frequently than, than human cells. Okay, and so this is just a summary. We see that we have contact inhibition, more efficient DNA repair, and then just a higher sensitivity and then apoptosis to DNA damage in these different organisms that are more cancer resistant. I just wanna end and briefly talk about bringing it back to humans. What can we now move forward on looking at cancer variation within human populations, and can we apply a similar framework um, to studying human populations and seeing if we can point out populations that are more susceptible to cancer and maybe um, screen those individuals better? And, and leave you with the question is, if we can apply this life history framework to human populations as well, Think of individuals, certain individuals living in highly unpredictable environments might um, lead to certain individuals having less DNA repair mechanisms or less investment in somatic maintenance um, than, than other individuals within the human population. So that's um, maybe a direction we'll move forward with uh, um, after we start finish mapping some of the rest of the comparative oncology. And um, I think that's it. I have a lot of collaborators that um, work on this project with me that I'd like to acknowledge. And um, I'm really happy to take any questions at this time. So thank you. 
You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.